My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex, only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Have you ever gone on a date with a total stranger? I'm talking about good old-fashioned blind dates. Today you're going to hear from a woman who's been on over 400 of them and wrote a very spicy book about the hidden sex lives of mature women. She's also going to weigh in on menopause. Is it really a pause in sex for women? We'll also weigh in for a listener who's concerned about her husband's desires as they age with the help of Dr. Megan Fleming and debunk a few myths on sex drive, fidelity, and attraction from midlife and beyond. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I'm still a little awestruck that I got to chat with Grace Slick of a Jefferson Airplane last week. It feels kind of like a dream. How amazing was she and Michelle Mangione, who I adore, and Erica Lust. They are all such powerhouses bringing such good into the world. To get a promo code for a free erotic film, thanks to Erica's company, visit my website, augustmclaughlin.com, M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N, augustmclaughlin.com, and sign up for email updates, which I send about once a month. Here's a quick reminder about Grace and Michelle's campaign in the wake of the recent hurricanes. When was the last time a song made a difference in your life? If you're a songwriter who would like to help the victims of the recent hurricanes, your music can make a difference. By offering one song download for just $1, you can help bring aid and hope to those in need. To find out more information and join songwriters Michelle Mangione and Grace Slick in this effort, please visit writersforthestorm.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-R-S for the storm.com. Thank you, Michelle. I just love what they're doing. All of you musicians out there, definitely check it out. And if you just enjoy listening to music, make sure you go to writersforthestorm.com and purchase a song or two. There's some amazing stuff on there, and the proceeds benefit people who've been harmed by the hurricanes. So I'm so thrilled to be sitting here with Arlene Schindler, a relationship expert, guest guru for AOL's Love Online, a spoken word performer, and author of a sexy novel called The Last Place She'd Look. And I hear she's also a pioneer in phone sex. Thank you for being here, Arlene. Thank you. So I'd love to find out first about your experience learning about sex and sexuality growing up. Did you have sex ed? What did you learn? Well, uh, I went to a predominantly gay high school, uh, which was the High School of Art and Design in New York City. And uh, I'd say that uh, that was a place where sexual fluidity was a happening thing before that phrase became a part of our culture many, many years later on. Uh, There would be guys in my classes who would sit next to me and we'd spend a lot of time together, and then they'd be out sick for about two or three days, and then they'd come back vamping like Marilyn Monroe, and they'd be these other people. And this this, hap- this happened a lot, plus everybody felt really safe to be themselves. It was a very safe, creative, nurturing environment. That's one of the most beautiful 
experiences around sexuality I've heard mm-hmm. from youth. That's amazing. And so was it very normalized and did it match up with what you learned in class or was kind of the real experience more powerful? Well, um, we went to school in Manhattan and everybody came from different boroughs and different cultures. So literally the act of being on the subway, for me coming from Brooklyn into Manhattan was was a whole other world. So we were just exposed to the world at large, different people, different cultures from the age of a of a high schooler, wow. a ninth grader, a 10th grader. Yeah, yeah, so interesting. And how did phone sex come about? Were you in New York or in LA at that point? Uh, I was in New York and uh, I had some I had some friends who were uh, were working for High Society magazine and uh, they enjoyed my uh, voicemail, my my voice message on my phone. So uh, they were working mainly exclusively with uh, porn actress Annie Sprinkle. And when Annie Sprinkle had the flu, they called me because they, they needed things for the day. So what happened was we did the, um, the commercials. There was a 976 number that people would call in New York City. And every day there was a different theme. And my friends would write the, uh, would, would, would the scripts. And so on one particular day, I went in, they, they offered me on my lunch hour a very good sum of money at the time. So then I thought, well, I'll get my cousin to join me because we were planning a surprise party for my aunt. So I figured double the money and we can, you know, have a catered buffet. So that's, this, is, this is where we were thinking. So we go there and uh, they liked my breathing, but they didn't necessarily like my voice. And they liked her voice, but they didn't like her breathing. So <laughs> while we were there, they reworked the script. So then we became twins. Oh, my gosh. One of you spoke and one of you breathed. Yes. And and so it became, we worked with uh, ice cubes and sound effects. And it was a whole, it was, it was, it was quite the... Uh, the uh, adventure on our lunch hour from our day jobs. That is fascinating. And by the way, Annie Sprinkle I know of because she's considered one of the experts on semen flavor. She's one of the reasons that we know that certain foods alter the taste of semen. Yes. She's she's been quoted many times. That's so interesting. So did they provide you a script or was this improvised? No, we were we were we were given scripts. There were people that I knew who wrote the scripts because this it was a it was a six it was a 60 second commercial in essence. So and they there was a formula. So you had to kind of come in and kind of, you know, say your name and coo, you know, "Oh, I'm so happy to see you." and get somebody really excited. And, you know, provocative and telling them things you're doing and things you're going to do when they call back for, uh, what was it, like three ninety-five a minute or something like that. So tease you now, pay for it later. <laughs> what a fun adventure. My goodness. So you've had a very illustrious path in so many different areas of the arts. You're a writer. You have this wonderful book that I hear. I haven't read it, but I've heard that it's very sexy. And I'd love to talk more about that in a bit. But first, going to your blind date history, I've wondered, you know, blind dates used to be, I feel like, really common. And now we have all these like dating apps. 
And even still, people are kind of meeting a stranger, right? We can look them up online. You can find out certain things. But in a sense, most people who are dating, it seems, have some sense of complete... Um, blindness. You can't really know who you're going to meet until you, until you arrive. So was this some sort of mission you were on to to have a lot of blind dates or to just kind of turn into? Because nobody, honestly, no one has ever said to me, I want to set you up with someone. Yeah. Well, uh, mainly I just kind of wanted to have a relationship. And uh, living in big cities, it's very hard to uh, meet people. And uh, also, I was in a work environment that was predominantly women. So uh, I didn't really get to meet many people other than people at work. And, you know, there's certain stigmas even within a, within a work environment. So initially, I started out in, in the dinosaur era of blind dates. You would place an ad. And I placed ads in The Village Voice, in New York Magazine, and people would write you letters, long letters about themselves, about their hope for you, of who you would be, of who they would think that the relationship would be, how it would evolve. And there were almost no photos. Yeah, I'd say I got photos maybe 5% of the time. That's fascinating. And I liked not knowing what people looked like because I wanted to um, get interested in them from their personality, from their handwriting. Uh, You could tell things about the paper that they wrote on, if they typed, if they used crayon, if there were coffee stains on the paper. All of these things told you things about them. I feel like this needs a reprise. What a fun thing would that be? It's kind of like the voice. Yeah, and and then there would be phone calls. And I really put a lot of stock in the phone calls because uh, somebody can take, you know, five or six days to write a witty letter, and then when you catch them and they have to be extemporaneous, they got nothing. So, uh, and that, that happened a couple of times. There were a lot of people who flunked the phone call. You know, after uh, 10 minutes, we would run out of things to say. We would run out of things that we had in common. But um, as a writer, I felt that creating an, an, a personal ad or a personal profile on a, on a website, uh, writers really have an advantage because they can um, fashion a description better yes. than, than other people. So true. And at the same time, I know a lot of writers who would not be as comfortable with the phone call. And it seems that you are, that's also something that you enjoy is speaking. So you had the two advantages. Well, I I wanted to avoid as much awkwardness and embarrassment as possible. Uh, I put a lot of stock in the phone calls and I would try to stay on the phone with somebody at least a half an hour, even almost to an hour to make sure that we had a rapport. Because I think now people look at somebody's photo and they text them and they plan a meeting spot. And then, especially if somebody doesn't look like their photo, it's like, oh, hello. And then there's nothing. And then how long am I going to sit here drinking this cup of coffee? We with someone who we, lied to me. <laughs> well, 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 with with no, n- nothing to say to the person. Yeah. Because the, the other thing is everybody lies a little bit because you don't want to be 
pre-rejected. You know, women lie about their weight. You'll see a photo of a woman with a great face and you'll have no idea that her butt is out of proportion for her body or even for the state that she lives in. Did they put their weight on these ads? No. Well, some people do. You know, I mean, there's the men who say they're looking for a woman who's 5'4 to 5'7. Oh, jeez. You know, so. Next. Yeah, so any anybody who you who has numerical needs, I try to stay away from. Yeah, the, the, the next file, the yeah. reject file, for sure. So tell us about one of your best blind dates. Ah. Uh, Let's see. Oh, well, it's funny because I, I kind of think more about the worst blind dates. I could see how they would stand out more. They, Tell they, us about the best worst blind date. Well, I think one of the most colorful ones is the one where um, it was actually a setup through friends. So it wasn't through the Internet. Um, a friend of mine had a friend whose brother was an opera singer. And... Uh, uh, I was supposed to meet him at his uh, at his sister's house on a Sunday afternoon for brunch. So uh, I got there, and uh, the woman came to the door, and she started crying. And uh, I'm thinking, you know, what 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 is this? And then she took me into her kitchen, and it was a beautiful kitchen, and the kitchen was spotless. And I had a bad feeling because we were supposed to be having brunch there and I didn't see any remnants of cooking. So then she told me that her her brother um, had a fatal heart attack that week and uh, he had passed away about three days ago. But she had heard such good things about me that the family wanted to meet me. So then she ushered me to the backyard and there were five or six people sitting under an umbrella at a table that was uh, brimming with uh, quiches and muffins and mimosas. And I, I had brunch with my dead date's family. What? And I really liked the family. And so, so it was like something good, something bad happened, something good happened. And then, you know, it's like, well, if, if I got a, if I hit it off with this guy, then, you know, we would have, you know, this would have been a great relationship with everyone. Aww. Not. But, you know, the, the good thing about dating a dead guy is you always know where he is. <laughs> that is very true. You're always looking on the bright side, which I appreciate. Is that the approach you take to dating? I know some people put a lot of stock into, they want the date to, if, if there's not these huge sparks, then they're done. And I know other people try to just see it as an adventure in each date. Let's make the most of this. What is your approach? Well, I think every date, each date does a lot of things for you if you can fashion it that way. Um, I learned when I would when I would go on bad dates, I would learn a little bit more about what I was looking for. I would also learn about what I was what I was offering, what I was giving to others. Uh, and you learn new things on dates. Uh, there was one date that I went on and I got to play pool for the very first time, or I got to be in a particular kind of boat for a very first time. So I learned new things, or sometimes somebody takes you to eat a cuisine you've never had before, or th there's always a new 
positive experience, even if the relationship doesn't go uh, in in the ways that you would like. Uh, I've done. Um, I've I've gone in a lot of situations where uh, I would meet somebody and it didn't quite work out, but they would be able to recommend me for uh, for a job or a project or something. So dating to me leads to many, many things beyond your imagination. Mm. So don't have these real specific expectations. No. Go with an open mind. Yes, yes. That is so fascinating. I and felt like the brunch scenario seemed like a... A scene from a rom-com or something. Yes. And lower your expectations. Yeah. Because then something good will happen if yes. you're not expecting much, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. So I have a question from a listener that kind of ties into one of your areas of expertise, which is sex and relationships from midlife and beyond. Mm-hmm. And I know it's a theme in your book as well. So this question, which Dr. Megan Fleming from greatlifegreatsex.com is going to weigh in on here in just a moment came in and it's from Jen. I think it's a really important question and very honest. And Jen, I'm so grateful that you asked it. She wrote this. Since I turned 48 months ago, something's been happening that I think I understand but don't know what to do about. Some backstory. My dad married his high school sweetheart, my mom. About 15 years into their marriage, my dad started cheating on her with much younger women. The first was 18 years old when he and my mom were about, you guessed it, 40. I married someone completely different, a stand-up guy who is not a player. But I've been having this intense paranoia that my husband won't be or isn't as attracted to me. Or worse, he'll be attracted to other younger women more or instead like our babysitter. I feel insecure and unattractive and think about this too much. I'm 99% sure my fears are all in my head, but can't seem to get rid of them. Any suggestions would be greatly appreciated. P.S. I haven't mentioned this to my husband because I'm so embarrassed. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing, Jen. Here is what Dr. Megan had to say. Jen, thank you so much for your question. Um, And I can really tell in your asking that, you know, your dad's cheating on your mom really had a huge impact on you, so much so that, like, at a core value, you really sought out um, and married, right, a stand-up guy. And so although, you know, now that, guess what, as you notice, you're turning 40, it's interesting that all of a sudden these insecurities are popping up for you. And I think, you know, they're really fear and anxiety. And, uh, you know, it may be, we often talk about what we call anniversary reactions. And you know, sometimes it can be, uh, you know, like an accident or injury and sort of at a year mark, but it also can be um, like ages, you know, some for some people it might be that they've lived longer than anyone else in their family and, you know, numbers and ages um, and experiences can take on deep meaning that not on a conscious level, but on a subconscious level, it's kind of like a wake up call, like pay attention. And so my sense is that might be a part of what's going on and or, listen, I'm not sure what your uh, friends might be saying or if you might be sort of exposed to hearing about um, more affairs or, um, you know, divorces, because there may be a lot of things sort of going on around you that's only exacerbating uh, these underlying worries and concerns. But what I can say is, you know, what we focus on expands. And it's sort of like if you look for it, you're going to find it. Uh, you know, we sort of say if you spot it, you got it. And so I want you to take a big step back and hold a space of curiosity to wonder if on any level you might be creating it, right? Creating sort of that that 
at root level uh, insecurity, anxiety, and fear, whether it might be coming like kindling to the fire and creating self-doubt and sort of looking for, um, you know, signs for concern. But what we know is because we have the negativity bias, um, you're only going to be reinforcing those feedback loops. So I want you to take that big step back and think about, you know, how is your husband showing up for you? Has he actually in his behavior um, or lack thereof given you any indication uh, that on any level his feelings for you have changed? Um, you know, is he less interested in sex, less likely to initiate, you know, isn't available? Do you feel on any level that, you know, he's not committing to sort of date nights or vacations or, um, you know, in, in some ways is, uh, you know, just not present, present in the moment with you. So when and if any of those things are true, you know what, that's common in any marriage or relationship, especially one um, a number of years in. And so, listen, I always think that anything that feels like a warning sign or flag is a, it's an opportunity, right? It's a wake up call. It's like, let's have a discussion and sort of clear the air because, you know, my sense is, as you said, you picked somebody very different than your father and you probably have a very different marriage. Um, and I think it's important that, you know, let you see how your husband is showing up for you and show up for him. I think how we show up for one another is uh, such a part of, you know, why we choose and commit every day to our marriage and our relationships um, because it's ultimately how we feel with that other person. So um, I think that it's great that you're noticing these feelings, that they're bubbling up. It sounds like they might even be getting bigger for you. So now's the time to like squash it or clear it, right? And really have that conversation. Um, and then again, always focus on the vision, the direction of the marriage you want to be in and how you want to look and feel right now this moment five years ten years from now because I think having that clear vision helps you both make the right choices and decisions to make sure that you make it a reality as always can't wait to hear how it goes thank you so much Dr. Megan Jen I hope that was helpful for you I love what Dr. Megan said about focusing on what you want to expand and I so agree with what she was saying about how the thoughts and feelings can grow when they're kind of festering and bubbling up. And I think a talk could be a really, really powerful place to start and maybe an ongoing conversation. Sometimes the scariest conversations are the best that we can have. I also really want to commend you for, for making sure that you did find somebody who suits your value system and who's not a player. I think that's amazing. And knowing that, there's a very good chance that he just wants to be there for you and, and help assuage these fears. And sometimes that's all it takes. I also found uh, a list of really well-researched reasons that men tend to become players. And it was put together uh by Robert Wise, who's a licensed social worker uh, who's been working with couples for over 30 years. And he said that married men who become players often rationalize cheating with stereotypes, you know, saying, oh, all men do this, but that's actually really far from true. And in general, he said, the biggest reasons men cheat with younger women or become players have nothing to do really with sex or attraction. It's it's either, here's kind of the big reasons he listed. Immaturity is one, so like a really stunted emotionally, um, you know, person who's gone through a lot as a child, perhaps. Co-occurring issues such as alcohol or drug addiction. Deep and unaddressed insecurities, like feeling not rich enough or smart enough or like they're not young enough. It's that whole kind of cliche midlife crisis um, that he may lack male social support. So, you know, males having male friends is is kind of frowned upon. And I think that's really, really sad. I think that 
for boys to grow up into men who are emotionally stable, it's really important that they can know that they can have those guy friends. So sometimes not having those can be an issue. And also having anger or revenge, being abused as a child or having extreme selfishness. So none of that sounds to me like a stand-up guy, right? So the guy you're you're describing in your email sounded like he doesn't perhaps have any of those issues going on. But as Megan said, if there are red flags or maybe if you're hearing from other people around you and other thoughts are getting into your mind, I think it's really important to explore them and use them as opportunities for growth. There was actually a study in evolutionary psychology recently that debunked this widespread assumption that that older guys, straight older guys, are like obsessed with younger women to the exclusion of others. It showed, and this had over 2,700 adults ages 18 to 50, it showed that older men some have a preference for younger women, just like some women have a preference for younger men. We're talking about heterosexual couples in this case. But most tend to find older women attractive as well. And actually, as men age, it showed they become less picky about age and care more about things like personality and traits and all that kind of stuff. So <laughs> Arlene's disagreeing with me. We'll hear from her in a second here. Um, so I think it's really important just to know that there are a lot of great guys out there, and and it sounds like you married one of them. I hope you can work that out. And I also think that's important to have a space to talk through your feelings. So if you do have a conversation with your husband or you're not feeling ready yet or you want more emotional support, you may have heard me rave last week about Talk's Face. I'm a little bit obsessed. They aren't sponsoring this particular episode, but I want to give them a shout-out and offer it to you, Jen, and to anyone else who might feel like they could use more support because you get 24-7 access to a credentialed therapy that gets matched up with you. You basically get a few recommendations. You can choose one. And then there's these daily check-ins. So to get $30 off your first month, go to Talkspace.com forward slash boner. Very easy to remember. Talkspace.com forward slash boner. Or you can find it on my website. Arlene is busting at the the lips here. She wants to say something. Okay, yes. Uh, I think that 40 is really kind of young for uh, a midlife crisis. It's usually closer to around 50, which is also the uh, Corvette buying age range. And uh, it's been my experience that many men lose interest in women their age as they age because if they're unhappy with themselves, if they're losing their hair, if their stomach is expanding, they don't want to see that reflected in somebody else. So it's more the insecurity, kind of like you're reflecting in them what they don't feel good about themselves. It's not really about the women's age per se. It's about their own feelings about their age. Well, that's one part. Then there's another part. A guy told me once he couldn't get sexually aroused by a woman who could no longer have children. Yeah, that's a thing. That's a thing that... You know, men feel like they're they're doing it and there's no possibility. Like they want to feel the virility of yeah. being a breeder. Which is one of the reasons that women feel so much more free sexually. Exactly, yes. Right? You know, and again, yes. these are generalizations. There's many yeah. exceptions. But yeah, that's interesting. Interesting. And I find, especially in the dating world, they like 
find ways to ask you about this. It's like if you meet if you meet somebody who finds you say physically attractive, they ask you your age. And I learned that when a guy asks how old you are, they really don't want to know your age. They want to know how many eggs you have left. Should I so should we just talk about periods when they ask that? Like actually, I just menstruated. Well, you know, they they have a thing and then also on dating sites, the the age where men stop contacting you is 45. If you're if you list your age as 46, no one will respond to you. And on dating sites, I was 45 for 7 years. Wow, which dating sites? Or is it just many? Um, just just anywhere. Like it's just it's a it's a thing. It's yeah. an age range. Cuz I know a lot of people who are, you know, women who are older who are dating and are super happy. But they've they've probably reached a different place and and they're probably getting a smaller group of people responding to them. And I imagine too, don't you think that dating sites sort of set up having specifics and types? Because I feel like yes. if you just met someone and you really connected, you're not really gonna care as much about their age, you know, as but if you're looking at a list and you're like having yes. to enter in data, don't you think it kind of forces people to type? A yes, it, bit? yes, it, yes, it does. You know, this, the same way there's height, there's eye color, there's hair color, there's ethnicity. And all of these are things that you input in a lot of the websites. So you potentially can rule out literally hundreds of people who who might be perfect for you but you're, you know, you, you don't have the experience to even know that this is something that you would like. Yeah, all the more reason to go back to that. No picture, put it in the newspaper, write me a letter. I've shared on the show before that I'm, I love letters, like yeah. real old-fashioned letters. <laughs> I think they're amazing. So I just think there's a... There's more mystique about that. And I understand physical attraction is important, but you can't get that much from a picture, really, right? Especially right. if people are choosing one. Yes. Because usually yes. it's like the best they could, you know, it's they think it's the best picture of them or they choose one they don't look super great in because they don't want to give the impression that, because it's hard to measure up with your own best picture. Right. Right. Now, I mentioned earlier that women lie about their weight, but I forgot to mention men lie about their hair. Any photo where you see a guy wearing a hat, that's it. That's it. Uh, they could have a receding hairline. They could have no hair. I remember going on a blind date with somebody, and uh, I was running late, and I called the restaurant to, uh, to uh, notify him because this was before the era of cell phones because this was way long time ago. And uh, in the photo, he was wearing a baseball cap. So uh, the woman answered the phone in the restaurant, and uh, she said, uh, what does he look like? And uh, I said, well, he has, uh, he has green eyes, and he's about six feet tall. And she said, and what kind of hair does he have? And I thought a second, and my answer was, I don't know. That's so interesting. So there's a lot of pressure on women to be thin, curvy in specific places. Yes. And I suppose there's a lot of pressure on men to have hair, hair to, yeah, hair. Yeah. Th that's the yeah. one, huh? <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, if women don't think it's a big deal, they think it's a big deal. Mm, isn't that so often how it goes? I just feel like a lot of times, even, you know, research that shows when uh, women are 
guessing how a straight man would feel about attraction. They imagine someone who's incredibly thin, who has like triple D boobs, and then that that's not at all what the guys are looking for. Although I still do think it's such a it's such a case by case basis. We're yes. all so different and so often I think that when we have a type in mind it can be so limiting, like you said, because you just might not meet this person that you have such great connection with. And then the attraction builds from there, too, yes. which can be really powerful. So I know you talk a lot in your book and, and in your work about sex after 50 and sex after menopause. What's one big myth you'd like to debunk specifically about women and sex drive and desire and all of that? Well, I think that there's actually really two kinds of women. There are women who lose interest in sex because of hormones or work or things that happen in their lives. And then there's the other women who are uh, feeling incredibly free. You know, when, you're, when your eggs dry up, your life begins. Mm. You know, if you don't have to think about pregnancy, if you don't have to think about being home in time to take care of your children or anything like that, you know, you can do anything. The problem is, say you're 55, a 55-year-old woman. Um, The men who are available to you either want younger women or in the event that they are interested in someone your age and find your personality captivating, they may have their own challenges. Meaning things like uh, erectile dysfunction, which comes from age, which comes from diabetes. And I've heard that most men over 50 carry uh, a Cialis or Viagra with them, you know, the, the way uh, other people carry breath mints, you know, just, just in case opportunity knocks, I want to be able to rise and answer the door. It's interesting because there's also this performance pressure, right? Like they're expected to be so virile and hard all the time. and, and And I think it also brings up that myth that sex has to be all about intercourse. You know, there's there's this term that we hear now called outer course, where yes. it's much more focused on the outside. And uh, a friend of mine is a 55-year-old dominatrix. She actually became a dominatrix at 55. And a lot of her clients are young men. And so it's interesting to me. It's like the, and I've read a couple of studies. There's a journal of um, the Medical Association that had it was, it was split very much like you were saying. There were some some women, um, people with uteruses, who didn't desire sex as much as they aged. And then there were many who felt much more liberated, had stronger orgasms. And one of the common factors they found in the people who still enjoyed sex and had more pleasure was that they prioritized it and felt they were worthy of it. Yes. Which is so interesting because I feel like we should all be learning that, don't you think? Well, I think in our culture... I mean, I go to restaurants in Los Angeles, and for the most part, I don't see men or women my age. I don't see them on television. I don't see them in ads. I don't. I don't see them in fashion magazines. So that there, needs to change. There aren't role models yeah. in our culture that I can uh, look at, and um, in some ways. I'm in the best shape of my entire life. I do TRX three times a week in a class with people who are half my age and sometimes uh, a third of my age. And um, 
And it's very frustrating for me to be invisible in the outside world. It's mm-hmm. like sometimes I wish I could have one of those cameras like the, the policemen are supposed to have and put it on my forehead and see all the, all, all the people that just kind of walk towards me and just look everywhere but at me. Mm. And it's, it's very frustrating. And part of it makes me feistier and a lot of my friends feistier because if you can act out, if you can dance like nobody's looking, if you can just you know, do things with that way, um, then then life can be more enjoyable. But if if I there, I mean there there, are, I have what I call high self esteem days and low self esteem days. And on the low self esteem days, I'm an invisible woman. But on the high self esteem days, you know, I'm just. Uh, I'm, I'm people want what you're having exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Whatever she's eating, drinking, I want it. And and and. I find you very radiant when you walked in. You have a light about you. And I think it's really sad to me that in our culture, especially because I know in Europe, it's very different. The sexiness of a woman matures in certain cultures and it should be that way. And I think it's really important for for younger individuals to take responsibility for that, because if we are creating content, if we are putting art out there, if we are hiring people for magazines, if we are writing shows for TV, we need to be seeing people of all ages. We absolutely because not only is that the compassionate thing to do and realistic, because why would you only show a small portion of society? But then also that makes a much more welcoming world for when we get there. You know, we should really be celebrating. And what is what is another thing that you do to to feel connected and, and sexy and on those days when you are feeling really alive? Is it is that you just have this confidence, so you just go out there without without these kind of inhibitions, or I think that if I'm having a good day, I just go, I, I feel stronger to go out and just kind of ignore the rejection, mm. you know. And 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 I think on those days, I may actually be more attractive, or I feel more attractive, yes. or just better. And you know that it it just doesn't matter. What is it? There's there there's a school of thought that says what other people think of you is none of your business. Yeah, I like that. Rebellion is a really powerful strengthener, I think, and it's it's a great way to boost how you feel about yourself too. To get a little angry at what other people are judging you about and society, and just go screw that. I'm going to go out there and be myself and do what I want to do and be what I want to be. So I haven't read your book yet, but I did see that there are very sexy sex scenes and you feature women who are, you know, middle-aged and and older. So tell us about writing those sex scenes and how people have reacted to, because I think we need more of those scenes. And I personally find them incredibly sexy. We should have more older people having sex in our entertainment I'm on a mission now, so tell me. Uh, let's see. Uh, a lot of the characters in the book are uh, taken from friends of mine, and a lot of the sex scenes are uh, things that they uh, they told me about from their lives. Uh, but also, I think that being a dominatrix at 55 makes a lot of sense because um, my experiences with that, there's a, there's actually a few chapters in the book where um, where the main the main character goes to um, a dom den 
And then she goes on an interview to work there. Mm. And the things that the things that happen, but uh, from from what I've seen in those circumstances, older women do very well there because the part of someone's psyche that likes to be spanked probably has something to do with their childhood issues. So who better to spank you than a mommy? I hadn't thought about that. I should introduce you to Sandra Lamorghese. Shout out to Sandra. She is the dominatrix. She actually wrote a memoir recently and really has been growing into her sexuality so much since. And it had to do with her whole life shifting, you know, really stepping into her own desires and saying, you know, I'm going to to really focus on myself, which it sounds like what you're saying is if the whole world is not, you know, cherishing because because there is an overemphasis on value of youth in our culture, then the whole world is kind of your oyster. Like, yes. just go out there and do it. Yeah. So was writing the sex scenes um, challenging for you and how have people reacted to them as readers? Well, a lot of people have liked them. Uh, one of the things that happens in the uh, sex scenes that are characteristic of my writing style is something that I call my, I call my writing sm- style smutty, which is smutty and funny. Whereas when something happens and we're we're on the road to a sexual experience, <laughs> and then there's a mishap beyond your imagination Ooh. that is hysterically funny. Can you give us an example? Just a little teaser. Uh, let's see. There's a situation where uh, she's uh, seduced by this incredibly handsome man, and he makes her this dinner, and he he wines her, and he seduces her, and and he takes off his clothes, and he's magnificent. And they're in his bedroom, and she's like, it's happening. It's happening. It hasn't happened for me in a long time. Uh, two things I was hungry for was uh, a hot meal and a hot man, and now I'm getting both. And she has such anticipation. And then as she undresses, she sees his face drop in disappointment. And he finds a way to say, uh, you have to leave. Why? Because he did not like her body. <gasps> I'm cutting him out of the story. And uh, you know, in when people read it, some some people were were upset with this. Some people thought it was hilarious. What did they think was funny about that? Well, just that you're going on a road, and then the road kind of Shifts. veers yeah. veers off. And you know, really, in that situation, he revealed who he was, right? She's showing her naked body. Yes, he's showing his naked. Douchebaggeriness. Yes, exactly. I just made up that word because he Mm -hmm. deserves it. (laughs) That's so interesting. So tell us where people can find the book and learn more about your work. Okay, they can they can find the book on Amazon. Uh, My website, which is arleneschindler.com, is where you can find uh, the book. You can find videos of me. You can find I also write for Huffington Post and Purple Clover and a few other places. So you can find a lot of articles there about women's empowerment, about relationships, things like and that. And your wine videos. I've seen a few. You you just sit down very naturally and they're very funny. Sipping your wine. Yes. Thank That's you. Beautiful. Yes, my, my wine wisdom. 
<laughs> things like why do women live longer than men, uh, dating divorced dads. Because when you date a divorced dad, they always make sure that you've had a good meal and gone to the bathroom before driving you home. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Arlene, do you come up with these impromptu? I live them. <laughs> you live them. I believe that. Thank you so much for being here. You're really a, a joyful presence, and I feel like you're bringing a lot of light to the world. Thank you. If you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I hope you'll subscribe if you haven't and leave us a simple review on iTunes while you're there. Remember to stop by augustmclaughlin.com for extras and to sign up for my mailing list. I'm getting ready to send out some really fun extras very soon. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.